Welcome to Prestigious Minds, where we explore the life and times of some of history's most influential people, such as inventors, businessmen, and entrepreneurs. All of these individuals have had a lasting impact on the world that we live in today. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob, and in this series, we discuss Andrew Carnegie. Also, we post once a week on Tuesdays. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. Now let's jump into this series, Andrew Carnegie. This is episode six. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm joined with my co-host today, Rob, How's it going? And this is our second episode covering Andrew Carnegie. And where we last left off, we were talking about his rise in the business world and how he learned to use investments to make money. Now, we're rounding out to the beginning of the Civil War. Carnegie is a telegraph operator for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Well, no longer an operator, but he oversees those divisions of the Western Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. In 1861, he becomes hired. Well, I say hired. He works and gets recruited and placed in a group of civilian advisors for Abraham Lincoln's cabinet for various different departments at the beginning of the Civil War. And on his way to the Capitol, he is actually riding a handcar, and he notices that some Confederate mobs or sympathizers have actually staked down the telegraph wires so that messages can't be sent through them because it grounds out the wires. And he jumps off and goes and pulls the stake out of the ground and the telegraph wire comes up and hits him across the face, causing a gash on his cheek. And he often joked about this as being the first person to be injured in the Battle Bull Run. This was the first major battle of the the, uh, Civil War and he was involved in it. And so this is like his first taste of not diplomacy, but being involved with the government in some degree. We see that later on, he is very much involved in government and befriends many presidents. He also uses the money from his investment in the Woodruff Sleeping Car Company to invest $11,000 in oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania around this time as well. And after a year, ends up making 17000 almost 18000 after one year of investment. And this is 1861 we're talking about. He ends up traveling to Dunfermline in 1862. He hasn't been back home since he came to the United States. He, come at, he, he spends a little bit of time over there, kind of, I guess, visiting family and whatnot, the usual things. Comes back, and his income in, 19, in 1863... Is $42,000 thanks to his multiple investments, and only 2400 of that is from his railroad job as wow. being a, a Pennsylvania Railroad manager. So he's almost making a million dollars in today's money in 1963. That is quite 1863. impressive. 1863. That is quite impressive. That is ridiculous. It's not even equal in terms of buying power either. I mean, 
Back then, $42,000 was probably worth more relatively than a million dollars is today. And I know that's kind of hard to imagine for a lot of people, but like you said in our previous episode, which you should go listen to if you haven't already, we talked about the price of meat being what, like 20 cents a pound? Something like that, yeah. So when he was making $5 a week, that's 1100 or sorry, $115 in today's money a week and he was making decent money so that's i mean for someone who's literally 14 years old that's not bad yeah at the time today it's horrible but then it's not bad yeah and i think that really gives you a strong contrast that equating money based on inflation of good value goods valued and even inflation itself can't really fill in the whole picture because you're like well, $5 a week back then is only like $150 a week today or $100. But then he's making $42,000 a year and that equates to about a million dollars. Those obviously are nowhere near each other even today, but you couldn't survive on $150 today. You can survive on a million dollars a year and that was considered a good wage at $150 a year. So... If you uh, just to break off a little bit from what we're talking about, just to discuss the the monetary aspect of this is, um, if you look at milk today, just the gallon of milk, a grocery store brand of milk will cost you anywhere from two to three dollars a gallon, <coughs> typically. If you're looking at something a little more um, low production, artisan, that kind of you know the healthy stuff, it's like six dollars a gallon. And the time we're talking, it's like 35 cents a gallon. That's for just like, you know, it's not pasteurized. It just comes straight from the cow. So it's got all the vitamins and nutrients and stuff you'd pay $6 a gallon for today. So just for reference, just to give you an idea, um, at the time, like uh, beef is 40 cents or 20 cents. A, it's re- relatively similar to a pound of beef is the same price roughly as a gallon of milk. And he's making like, you know, a million dollars in today's money. So that's crazy. Um, do you actually know why they began pasteurizing milk? No, I don't. I don't either, but I have a idea that it may be to allow the product to be to to last longer. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I I know kind of the idea because my my granddad at one time what time was a milk farmer, so. Um, or a dairy cow farmer that produced milk. And it's to, um, you know, because you get your milk from different sources. Like, it doesn't just come from one farm. It comes from many different farms. They blend together, and many farms have many cows and so on and so forth. So there could be some sort of bacteria in one uh, one batch. You know, you, you don't know if it's super clean or not. So if you... If you um, pasteurize it kind of kills some of that bacteria but you also don't get the nutrients you would from fresh milk i I don't want to dive too deep into the science behind pasteurization and how you lose those nutrients because to me the way i think about it at least a large portion of that comes from elements and trace minerals and whatnot and when you pasteurize and heat that up you don't really lose that or cook it off so i'm wondering if maybe some of the stuff is just um 
Well, you're not you're not necessarily cooking it off, but you're causing a chemical conversion. Ah, uh, that makes more sense. As far as I'm concerned, you know, certain. Um, I mean, it, it just depends on. Uh, not going off a tangent, but depends on the food you're using. Like, if you cook broccoli, is it better for you raw or better for you cooked? I think eggs is technically has more nutrients when it's cooked, for instance, than it does raw. But the opposite is true for certain vegetables. So, that but makes it, sense. you know, anyway, uh, so things even back then are, are not super expensive and the cost of living is less because, well, you had less technology, you had less things to buy too. So you could get a, away with a uh, hundred to two hundred dollars a week in today's money back then now it costs no telling how much a week to live so now that we have that segue and the history and or effects of pasteurization we're in the middle of the civil war carnegie makes a pretty decent amount of money and from his investments primarily he becomes drafted in 1864 in the Union Army. His options include paying the federal government $300, which we talked about that with Rockefeller, or finding a suitable replacement. Carnegie feels he has done his patriotic duty because he supervised and telegraphed communications early on in the war, specifically with the president's cabinet, and decides to pay his replacement $850 to serve in his place, which would have been more than double the sum necessary to outfit a soldier. In 1865, so the war is coming to an end, he retires from the railroad, but he's not retired from working. He founds his first company, which is a Keystone Bridge Company. They build iron bridges, and they actually made a lot of money from the rebuilding the bridges that got burned during the Civil War. So the majority of bridges, the majority of bridges, were built out of wood prior to the Civil War, and so in order to impede travel on those railroads anywhere there was a bridge, either side would burn them, and you can imagine this impeded travel a lot after the Civil War. And Carnegie, the opportunity that he saw was well, I'm going to build iron bridges because they're stronger and better than wood bridges and could probably be fashioned a little bit quicker, safer, and you can't burn them or blow them up as easily. And they probably don't have to be maintained as, as often either. Yeah. And so he, along with several associates, he founded the Keystone company, the Bridge Company with associates from the Pennsylvania Railroad. And when they did this, they reorganized the Piper and Schiffler Company into the Keystone Bridge Company. This they did specifically to, what we just talked about, address the bridge problem for the railroads, and I'm sure other bridges outside just the railroad bridges. Tom Scott, that we have talked about in the previous episode, loans Carnegie half of the $80,000 he needs for his investment, this is the money that he and his associates used to start building the facilities and bridges needed to be successful. And because he's associated with the railroad, 
and the Pennsylvania Railroad, he's able to receive contracts to build bridges. Later on, going underneath the similar name, they he also founds the Keystone Telegraph Company, and this is very similar to previously, and he gets permission from the Pennsylvania Railroads to string telegraph wire across the already existing railroads telegraph poles, which gives a broader communication to the general public. So what this means is the telegraph poles were there for primarily Pennsylvania Railroad correspondence of railroad communications. Because the railroads are already going and tying together major cities and towns, they make use of the same infrastructure that's already been built and put in other lines that they can then use for other transmissions. This becomes such a valuable asset that the Keystone is able to merge almost immediately with the Pacific and Atlantic Telegraph Company, allowing Keystone's investors to triple their return. Well, so he's trying to, um, I wouldn't say, not the word privatization, but he's not trying to privatize the um, um, telegraph uh, companies, but he's trying to, what, what he's trying to do is make it more common for people that aren't in the industry and aren't in like um, government and other industrial industrialized industries to be able to utilize the um, telegraphs. Is that kind of what he's doing here? Yeah, I think he's trying to spread the technology for more general purpose use versus just industry. Because like you just said, this was a privatized telegraph like like the telegraph itself in general operated many facets but the pennsylvania railroad already had their own lines and so they use those to transfer their own signals and own messages but because like i just said the railroad spans everywhere to modern america the infrastructure is already there so you don't have to go through the trouble of setting up your own infrastructure of poles to set up your own wires they already exist so you can just string them on existing poles and because he obviously was used to be an employee of the railroad, he also knew pretty high up some of the people that worked there. He was in business with some of them. They were like, hell yeah, go do it. Right. So just a point of clarification, the, the railroads are privatized at this point. And um, what I mean by privatization in this aspect is he's doing, he's adding telegraph wires that are not for that specific use, like more general use. So. Just so we're understanding, because at at some point in the future, not to look too far ahead, but the the railroads will be nationalized at some point. Yes, and we'll also see some common names that you may have heard of come up and be more relevant, known better as as Alexander Graham Bell or Thomas Edison, just to name a few people. We will not dive too deep into those people or at all right now. But in the not-so-distant future, maybe mentioning those people in more detail. Yeah, just a little look ahead, a slight look ahead, possibly. Just a little a little carrot to dangle in front of you there. Yeah. Anyway, getting back on track about Carnegie. So, he has now technically founded two companies underneath the same somewhat name the Keystone Bridge Company and the Keystone Telegraph Company, which is now part of the Pacific and Atlantic Telegraph Company. And in 1868, we take a look at more of his private 
thoughts, and he pledges to resign from business. And how he does this is he writes himself a letter that outlines his plans for the future where when he determines to retire, which is at the age of 35, and live on an income of $50,000 per year, devoting the rest of his money to philanthropic causes, and most of the time to his education. This letter, and more detailed, he states that he wants to pursue a formal education at in England for several years to get an actual degree from university and give away all of his money. And what ends up happening is not that. So he does not end up continuing his education ever. He never actually retires at 35. He doesn't retire until much later on. He does contribute, as we'll find out later, a large portion, if not what you would consider all of his money that he has earned to philanthropic endeavors. He believes, so this is a very popular quote, is a man, a wealthy man that dies wealthy is a disgrace to a man that gives away all his wealth while he's living. That's not the exact quote, but that sums it up pretty well. And when he when he's talking about retiring at 35 with $50,000, today's money we're talking like... million dollars a year so that's not insignificant at all yes and i would like to point out carnegie was not someone so we're going to draw a comparison again to rockefeller he was not someone to shy away from luxuries so when we talked about rockefeller he was very much not very showy. He didn't spend a lot of money on luxury. Now, does that mean he didn't have nice things? No, it just means he wasn't, he didn't flaunt it in front of people. And Carnegie, I wouldn't say flaunted it, but he definitely spent the money. Like he bought several estates. Um, some of them were pretty luxurious. He bought one, he bought an old castle in uh, Scotland and redid it. It was called Skybow. Um, we'll talk about that later. And he also joined various clubs like hunting and fishing clubs and whatnot. We'll also mention the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. There's a particular disaster that happens, foreshadowing there. But he definitely wanted to enjoy some of the wealth that he accumulated. And growing up in the slums of Pittsburgh and the slums of Scotland, I can't say that I can't not say that I would blame him for that. I mean. If you're talking about, like, he's enjoying the wealth he's accumulated, that's perfectly fine. There's no issue with that at all. Because it doesn't seem like, I mean, it, it seems like he had a little less controversy at, at this point than Rockefeller did. Because, you know, if you want to go back to the previous episodes, Rockefeller kind of had an issue with some of the um, companies he was acquiring and some history there. But... I mean, even though Rockefeller wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a miser or anything, but he wasn't showy, there's no, there's no problem with, like, buying stuff that you want to buy, and you can kind of see in the, like, if you forecast what Carnegie's going to do in the future, you can see he also gave a lot of his stuff away. So, he wasn't someone who was just accumulating wealth for no reason. Very similar to how Rockefeller viewed, I should earn as much money as possible to give away as much money possible, as responsibly as I can. Carnegie felt very similarly, but he approached it slightly, or he approached it slightly differently. He saw, well, I'm already going to devote all my wealth to charity or philanthropy in one form or another. Therefore, 
if I'm still able to, I need to accumulate more wealth. I would say, though, he was not as ruthless, ruthless as Rockefeller, but he was more distant to kind of shed away more blame. He ends up joining in business to start the Edgar Thompson Works with Henry Clay Frick. Frick is 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 a main character in Carnegie's life. He ends up running the company. He also founded the Frick Coke Company, which was a prime component in making steel and the production and forging of steel. Just a little synopsis over Frick. He, in 1871, organized the Frick Coke Company with money that he borrowed from family and neighbors. 1873, a financial panic hits the U.S. And a slight segue even from this that I thought was very fascinating is mainly pertinent to 2022 where we're kind of hitting a very high inflation for most people. Financial panics happened quite often in the U.S., it seemed like. Like, we have one in 1873. There's also one in, like, 1887. There's also one in, like, 1882. I wouldn't say they happen all the time, but I would say during this industrialization process where you have vast expansion and growth on a very rapid level, especially compared to today, not not so much as technology advances like you see today, but just economic power and growth of the economy it was so quickly developing and changing they saw financial panics almost once every decade like very common to see one almost every decade if not two or like minor ones in multiple like sets for one decade and last for a year or two I want to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of prestigious minds I hope that you are enjoying it also, I would like to ask if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere you listen, and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here. Also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pmindspod, where you'll also get a visual representation, not just the audio of what we talk about here. Now back to the show. Anyway, back to Frick and his cook company, he ends up borrowing more money to buy out his partners in most of his competition. And four years later, the price of Coke has quadrupled and Frick has earned his first million. And then this brings us up to Carnegie opening his first steelworks plant. The Edgar Thompson works at Braddock, Pennsylvania. The plant is named for the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And the reason why they did this is so that they could hopefully garner more support among Pennsylvania executives to get contracts exclusively to build their rails out of steel. Because before this, most of the rails were made out of iron. Steel at this point was somewhat very difficult to forge. It was sold by the pound because of how difficult it was to make. This was how Carnegie was able to get his first order for 2,000 steel rails for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Let's talk about steel for a minute. So, Rob, can you give us some basic history over steel production? If you're talking about basic history, I can give you the basic, uh, how, how it kind of started. So, if you go back to, let's say, the Bronze Age, right? So... 
way back when. Don't want to give dates. Don't know the time. But go back to the Bronze Age. Bronze Age, you had um, really soft stuff that was made primarily for weapons, materials, and something that was just more durable than wood and um, or fibers. So if you go past that, you get in the Iron Age, right? So you have the iron. It's really it's really brittle, but it's strong. So if you look at a, a steel uh, like steel, steel is pretty much a composition of iron and carbon, and the forging of that in the early stages was pretty hard. I mean, <clears throat> you have to run to get steel. You have to have um, really hot fires. Like you can, like if you talk about forging something out of lead around a little under a thousand degrees is necessary but still they could take up to like 1800 1800 to 2000 degrees fahrenheit and just the technology at the time you know was not as prevalent and while while things were definitely made out of steel in the time we're talking it 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 wasn't widely used as stated before i mean um there's been speculation throughout history that there's been types of steel, such as Damascus steel and Wootz steel, but that's that's a story for way beyond today. We could talk about that for a long time. Typically, things that are made from steel are stronger, they're more ductile, they're going to last longer than things made from iron. Just because of the way it's processed and the, the ability to get imperfections out of it. So if you can if you can make at this point, if you can make something out of steel or revolutionize the steel process, you're I mean, you're going to be the leader in any technology at the time. Any technology. There's your little synopsis over the history of steel on a very short abridged version. Very abridged. When Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie, I'm going to mess that up the entire series. I hope not. Hopefully by the end of this series, I will pronounce his name in the Scottish historical proper way. I don't even think that's a... I'm still going with Carnegie because that's what I can pronounce well. Nonetheless, when they started the the Edgar Thompson (laughs) works... Carnegie traveled to London and broader England to find a process for making steel on a mass scale and adapt it to what he was trying to do. And initially tried this with a process that was almost rolling the steel over the iron rails. So it'd be like a steel clad over iron rails. This proved to not be very successful. It failed multiple times. The the steel itself would separate from the iron and it wouldn't forge very well. Well, there was a person that invented the Bessemer process, which was a way, which was the first inexpensive industrial process for mass production of steel from molten pig iron. This used an open hearth furnace and it used rapid oxidization to remove impurities from the iron and you also had the coke which if it was superior quality you could add pure carbon to it and this is what you were able to use to further the production of steel so like i mentioned earlier 
you were producing steel per the pound and it was very costly and expensive to do and extrude. And now Carnegie has found the people in the process that is commercially viable for steel. And he hires a bunch of these people to come back and work at the Edgar Thompson Steelworks to produce steel rails for multiple railroads. Obviously, steel, like I said, is somewhat of a boutique item made mainly for like silverware and and smaller things. And he's able to extrude these into ingots and steel rails. They work. They work phenomenally. So Carnegie, understanding that he needs to secure a Coke contract or a manufacturer of Coke, Frick being the largest one, he strikes a deal up with Henry Clay Frick. And initially he owns about 11% of stock. And then he soon thereafter increases his share to over 50%, becoming the primary owner of the Frick Coke Works. This is not something that Mr. Frick is very happy about mainly because he built this company up very much like Carnegie and built his ironworks company from the ground. And I think for Frick and Carnegie, they kind of relate in the aspect of their fathers both being failed people. Well, failed in terms of work. And so Frick, I don't think ever accepted the fact that Carnegie did this to him. But nonetheless, Frick was a ruthless businessman. He had the knacks for it. He had the teeth and the tenacity to take on people in business dealings and or strikers, union strikers. And there is a very uh, popular strike that happens in Carnegie and Frick's future that we will talk about in the next episode. But we're not there yet. This is 1881. And Carnegie returns to Dunfermline with his mother because he promised that they would be riding in a a carriage with fine horses. And he takes his mom back to Dunfermline. He visits with family. And then they travel across Scotland in parades. They they travel in a coach in front of townspeople. And this is where Andrew donates the first library to the town to Dunfermline outside the United States. This is where we see his philanthropic works, and as we mentioned before, even from a young age, he really believed in reading and expanding upon education, and he did this primarily through libraries and the building of libraries and the funding of libraries. So there's a rival steel mill that is pretty significant, becomes a leading producer that was struggling outside of where his current steelworks was called Homestead, and he buys it in 1883. Now... We're reaching a point where we're going to discover that Carnegie kind of has a conflicting personality in the point of unions and capitalization. Carnegie defends unions. He publishes essays and pamphlets talking about how workers have the right to unionize. He tries to sympathize with these laborers because he once was a laborer himself he uses this as a way to also progress his writing career. So he always wanted to be a writer. And so this is where he really jumps into that and publish his triumphant democracy, which sells over 70,000 copies and celebrates American belief in democracy and capitalism. So what you see here is kind of that opposing view of unionization and capitalism. And this is also around the time that anarchism will arise and play somewhat of a key role 
that we'll see later on in the early 1900s. Carnegie always straddles the fence between between peace and capitalism, and those two don't really go together, but that'll make sense later on when we talk about how he secures a defense contract for the Department of War, because it was called the Department of War back then, not the Department of Defense. Right. I don't think it was changed until after World War II. In 1886, his mother and his brother both die, so his brother catches typhoid fever, and I know that's a very like sharp turn, but so his brother dies of typhoid in his mid-40s, and he was also his business partner. Andrew Carnegie suffers a relapse from from this. He kind of becomes very ill. And then his mother dies a month later of pneumonia. Because Andrew was already under the weather due to his brother's death, they kept his mother's death a secret by lowering her coffin out of her bedroom window. Wow, that is strange. A dedication. I guess. So it's it's pretty fascinating, and I think this is a good point to state that he really was close with his mother. He actually had a pledge that he would not marry anyone while his mother was alive, which is why he's like in his mid-40s and hasn't married anyone approaching his 50s. And he was very devout to his mother in every way, very much to how we saw Rockefeller was very close to his mother. And he did everything he could to ensure that the last days of her life were great and did everything he could to, pro- to to confirm those promises he made when he was honestly just a kid. And during this whole time, he has been courting a Miss Louise Whitfield all the way back to 1870 when they first met. And Whitfield is about 20 years his junior. So... He's like almost 50. She's like in her early 20s, mid-20s. And his mother dies, and then they finally get officially married in 1887. During this whole thing, they have been going back and forth on engagement, not engagement. She is kind of growing tired because she's like, you know, I kind of want to get married. I'm growing older, in my early 30s almost. Which is, you know, super old. Yeah, I mean, back then you got married pretty early. I mean, even Rockefeller got married late. He got married in his, like, 28, and she was 26, I think. Like, wow. I mean, that seems very comparable to today when people get married. I guess he had a a better thing to do, like make money and start industries and revolutionize the production of steel. So, Yeah, I mean, they were inventing, they were producing steel en masse to further building and construction of bridges and buildings. You also had telegraph wires becoming strung up everywhere for mass communication. So you had a lot of a lot of growing and this matters a lot because it, it forward a lot of progress, not just for him, but also a lot of people. And in eighteen eighty seven, after he marries Louise, Henry Clay Frick organized a coalition of coal company coke companies to resist striking labor, which he used to break a labor union. Carnegie, being somewhat sympathetic to the union workers, and even non-union workers, just the laborers in general, he did not want to be a one of those people where you had to use force to settle the strike. And so, Carnegie, owning the majority of Frick's company, he forced them to settle with the workers. So he forced Frick's company to settle with the coke workers 
to ease the tension and come to a resolution. I guess this is part of the controversy part. So it's kind of a reverse of what people thought Rockefeller was, right? So he had Frick that was like, hey, we need to bust up these unions because they're costing us money, they're costing us time. And then someone who actually worked in an industry that was um, hard, labor, laborious, and um, not very fun at the time, um, he kind of felt like he was sympathetic with him. But um, do we know the resolution that they came to? So the majority of the labor dispute came from hours and wages, which makes a lot of sense. So the original iron workers worked on a sliding scale. And the way the sliding scale worked was when iron prices were up, the wages were up. When iron prices were down, the wages were down, but this got stopped at a bare minimum on the wages. So if even if the price of iron fell below that minimum, at least the iron iron workers would still get that minimum. The reason why this was is because the people who made iron were skilled artisans. They knew how long it took for the iron to smelt and to when to pull the slag off, when to turn it, when to pour it. And this was a very skilled labor type work. This was initially the problems that you see happening. And then later on, when with the invention of steel, you don't have this because now everything's a little bit more automated. There's more machinery involved. And so you don't have as much artisan artisans working in this field you don't have as much going on in terms of skilled craftsmen you start to see the beginnings of more push down from the leaders of the company but also Carnegie himself whether he did it or not to enforce lower wages and more work hours because at the end of the day more production led to more money and lower rates and wages led to money saved. So they thought just because they didn't need the skilled labor like they did when they produced a wrought iron or whatever kind of iron it was, they thought they could get away with less skilled labor because things were becoming more automated. Of course, you have capital investment of machines and um, industrial equipment like that that you know that's kind of in the overhead. So I I understand where they're coming from, but. Um, if you're trying to increase hours on top of that, that's that's um, pretty crazy. Yeah, so they actually went along with like the 10-hour, even 8-hour. I don't know if it was 8-hour. I want to say 10-hour work day for instead of working 6 days a week, it was 5 days a week. So that's somewhat reasonable. And they did that for at the beginning. Because Carnegie was very sympathetic at the beginning, and then as he went further along and stuff became more expensive, he decided to he decided to further reduce wages and increase hours. They eventually increased the workday to a twelve hour shift six days a week for less money. So this is where dissent comes along of union workers and non union workers because you have to think some of these plants were non union to begin with. And I believe it was the Homestead, yes. So Homestead was a unionized plant before he got there. Carnegie's plants, before this, he was able to prevent unions from forming, mainly through talking with union leaders and saying, hey, I'm giving them the hours, you know, reducing hours, increasing wages, guaranteeing these contracts. But he soon realized that in order for him to progress at the rate that he wanted to, he needed to limit, 
limit the amount of wages earned for the workers and increase the hours. Can you imagine going from like 50 hours to 72 hours a week? That's insane. Yeah, and they actually had, I guess there was a, a, there was a good contrast to this that I thought of, um, or not that I thought of, that uh, I heard someone say when I was researching was, no one really can work 12 hours a day all the time. Like, if you work in an office, you fall asleep at your desk. Like, that's not cool. I mean, obviously you're worn out, you're exhausted. You fall asleep in an iron mill and you die. You lose your life. So, a very strong contrast between those two things. And I would also like to point out that Carnegie made it a point to try to stay as far away from the work as possible because he realized he did not have the temperament to manage people directly. So, he preferred to deal with only a few people like Crick who had the roughness to do the harder things in business that Carnegie did not have the stomach for. Such such as screw over his workers. (laughs) For lack for, uh, you know, in lack for a better term. Yes. And we can go deeper into this and dive more in depth on that in the next episode, which would be the third installment over Carnegie. I think we're going to sum up this episode here, Rob. Yeah, so we've looked at where Carnegie's started his career in the last episode and how he's become a millionaire in this episode. And I'm talking like legitimately a millionaire in this episode. So one of the richest people to come out of the Industrial Revolution and influential. And he, you know, we've went from someone who I would say understood the working class to someone who really didn't have any patience for it later on in his life. So we're kind of taking a weird, you know, a more harsh turn. But, you know, by the end of this, maybe we'll, uh, he'll have softened up a little bit or, you know, made it worth our while to listen to. Yeah, and we'll expand more on it um, on the next episode. We'll dive a little bit more deeper into his writing career along with his beliefs on labor and unions versus what he did in his own steel mills and iron mills. But until next time, this has been Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod and go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds.